The New Testament reading is, is taken from Ephesians 4. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put all, off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give way to the devil. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may, be, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. And let's bow once more in prayer. Father, we thank you today for your word, and we thank you that we can come with great confidence, knowing that this is indeed the word of God, and that in a way that transcends all our ability, it comes in its divine might and in its divine power, and it speaks to us like no other voice can. And so, Father, I pray today for the living voice. I pray for the active voice of God to flow through these pages and through these words to find their target and to speak loud and clear to those who need to hear. And so now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're looking today, uh, continuing to look at Ephesians, our study on Paul's majestic letter to the church at Ephesus and the churches around Ephesus. And I was tempted today to call my, or entitle my sermon Anger Management uh, because I want to deal in a very focused manner with what Paul has to say in verses 26 to 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, in the latter part of chapter 4, Paul continues to describe the Christian ethic in view of this new life in Jesus that we're a part of. And what he does essentially is to exposit the, uh, the second table of the Ten Commandments, the last, uh, the last uh, five commandments. He addresses stealing. Let the thief, the, the, the thief steal no longer. He addresses murder by warning against words that don't promote 
life, but rather death. And so he says, let your words and your tongue uh, be used to build up, not to tear down. He addresses the problem of lying and falsehood, and he urges truth-telling in verse 25. And then in the opening chapters, or opening verses of chapter 5, Paul takes up commandments 7 and 10 when he addresses sexual immorality, and then statedly when he addresses covetousness. And so on the one hand today, it's very important to recognize by the apostles' own dealing here with Ephesus that no Christian is beyond the law. We are beyond the curse of the law in Christ. The law may no longer curse us, but we are not beyond the call of God's law to obey it in all of its fullness. And so in the New Testament, as with the Old, to refuse God's law continues to be the nature of sin. This is what John says in 1 John 3. Everyone who breaks the law sins. In fact, John says, sin is lawlessness. That's how it's defined. The new life of Jesus, Paul says here in Ephesians 4 and 5, it brings us back into proper conformity to and relationship with God's moral law. And so Paul talks about all of the latter five. But rather today in dealing with that gamut, that full list of the second table, I want to briefly bring your attention to what Paul has to say about anger. Now, anger is a big part of our lives, and it's a big part of the Bible. You can't read very far in either Testament without encountering significant anger. In fact, God himself is conveyed to us, presented to us, as one who is angry at all times. Psalm 7, 11, perhaps one of the easiest combinations of chapter and verses to remember. God is angry with the wicked how often? God is angry, the psalmist says, with the wicked every day. Not a day goes by in which God is not provoked in his righteous self by the deeds of the wicked, unless we should presumptuously and thoughtlessly exclude ourselves on the basis of our position in Christ. Paul warns us, and he reminds us in chapter 4, that we too, by our sin, may grieve the Holy Spirit of God. God is not angry towards us in the way that he's angry towards the unredeemed. His anger does not seek to destroy us, but God is indeed provoked, Paul says, when we rebelliously refuse him. And so the Bible states that God is indeed very good at being angry. He knows himself perfectly, and, and knowing that he is the only all-satisfying aim of the whole universe he detests and he hates every perverse and every crooked way that turns his creatures away from himself, his honorable and glorious self. Where men or women deem that God is less than he, the Bible says that God's anger is aroused. 2 Samuel 6-7 the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there besides the ark of God. Because Uzzah did not regard God's holiness, 
Because Uzzah didn't appreciate God's distinctness, Uzzah didn't fear the Lord as the Lord of hosts. And he stretched forth his hands to think that he could touch the Holy One, and God's righteous anger, we read, flamed into action. And even the best of servants in the Bible are no exception. You'll recall Moses, just after God had chosen him, God's chosen messenger. But Moses doesn't fear the God of the covenant. He doesn't have the same fear as his father Abraham. He doesn't regard the covenant of God and but for a prudent wife. And all the husbands now nod and thank God for prudent wives. But for the prudent wife, Moses would have been destroyed by God. He hadn't circumcised his own sons. He didn't regard God. And one of the greatest Old Testament prophets would have been destroyed. Well, you say, that's the Old Testament. Jesus shows us a different God. Jesus shows us a kinder God. Well, I'm not so sure about that. God begins the story of his church with the example of a couple. Their name is Ananias and Sapphira, two members of the church community who, who treat God with little regard. Two people who think that they can practice dishonesty before God and do it with impunity. And God rises up in his anger. And what does he do? He strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead. And great fear, we read, comes over the whole church as they all begin to say, who is this holy God with whom we have to do? God is angry all the time, we read. God gets angry, and God gets angry well. He gets angry worthily. He gets angry righteously because his anger, first and foremost, always concerns his incomparable honor and his incomparable worth. Well, made in the image of God, we also have the God-given capacity for anger. We can perceive sin. We can perceive ungodliness and crookedness and unfairness. And great anger can be powerfully provoked within us. And so Calvin writes, anger is always our near neighbor. Anger is never that far away from any one of us. Some of us admittedly are more irascible than others. The fire of color is more distinctly in some people than in others. Moses, you'll recall, his great downfall was anger, his choleric temperament. Paul, I think, wrestled with the old yellow bile. And Luther was a man easily provoked to wrath. You don't read much of Luther without seeing that short fuse. And there are times when the God-given gift of anger can work well, when the God-given capacity to be angry, it shoots at the right target. But the reality is, far more often, anger brings us into bondage. Anger brings us into captivity. As the old godly Scottish minister Alexander White says, the devil has just to start playing his pipes, and the angry man gets up to dance. Now looking at our text today, Ephesians 4 seems to imply that the apostle wants us to be angry. In fact, the verb is in the imperative. He commands us. 
be angry and do not sin. Now, what I want you to notice today is the connection between these two things. The conjunction in that sentence, the, the Greek chi, the and, between anger and ceasing from sin grammatically can imply a causal relationship between these two things, as it does with many other phrases, right? Eat and be satisfied. Listen and understand. Come and be delivered. And so reading here in the same way, the same manner, be angry and stop from sinning. That is the right kind of anger that Paul recommends, leads, and leads to and promotes a godly heart. And so the obvious question for all of us today is, well, what is the right kind of anger that Paul is admonishing us today to possess and to act in? As I stated before, wrong anger abounds, and finding the right kind of anger is tricky indeed. Paul warns us in verse 27 that the wrong kind of anger will bring the devil into our life. The wrong kind of anger exercise gives the devil a foothold, he says, in our soul. The word that he uses in the Greek is topos. The wrong kind of anger gives the devil a place. It opens up a place for Satan to dwell in our hearts and in our minds when we give into it. And this threat, says John Calvin, the threat of the devil taking up residence in our souls ought to make the hairs on our head stand on end. Who among us, he writes, will not be horrified when we hear about him subjecting himself to Satan through the wrong kind of anger? If you stretch back your minds a bit further, think about the opening of humanity in Genesis in the wake of the fall. What is the very first sin that the writer of Genesis seeks to delineate? It's anger. Anger is the first sin that Scripture records after the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Cain was angry, we read, and in his anger, his face, it fell. By the way, just as an aside, we often uh, think of Abel as this little uh, goody two-shoes, perfectly innocent. <laughs> but there's a blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel's because Abel, too, was desperately wicked and deceitful. Abel was a sinner and a product of the fall. And in my more speculative moments, I can't help imagining Abel tweeting to his family, humble today <laughs> at the way God was pleased to accept just my offering. Hashtag soli deo gloria. Hashtag boast only in God as Cain grinds his teeth. But my speculation aside, the Lord warns Cain. Why are you so angry, Cain? Why is your face so fallen? Sin is at your door, Cain. Sin wants to devour you, Cain. Sin wants to rule you, Cain. It wants a place inside of you to call home, but you, Cain, must rather dominate it and rule it and reject it. But Cain refuses the counsel of the Lord, and he reaches out to that crouching beast. He reaches out to that spirit of anger itself, and something takes possession of Cain's soul, and that anger reveals itself to be what it really is. And Cain goes from being a brother to being the very first murderer in our world. 
You see, wrong anger abounds. And so again, as we spoke to our children this morning from James 1, let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Well, what then, we ask ourselves, is the right kind of anger that Paul is admonishing us to possess? Well, the key here is the source of Paul's quotation. Paul quotes the phrase, be angry and sin not, like it's a proverbial maxim, like people have already heard it, that they should expect him to say such a thing and they would recognize its source. And so it was, because Paul takes this phrase from the fourth Psalm. Psalm 4, verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Now, like many other Psalms here in Psalm 4, David repeats himself with a parallel phrase. He says the same thing, but in a different way, worded differently. And so the second half of verse 4 says this, ponder in your own hearts and be silent. That is to say, this is the anger that I'm talking about, says David. Look to your own hearts. Look to the beam in your own eyes. And let the sight of your own sin rule your response to others. Which is as much to say, be angry with yourselves. Be angry with your own sin and so escape the snare of sinful anger, which has much more to do with your honor than it has to do with God's honor and his glory. The reason, writes Calvin, why our minds go beyond all bounds in sinful anger with others is that we do not examine our own hearts. We are not grieved with ourselves but rather we soothe ourselves in our own conceits of our own moral worth. How many ways, writes Calvin, do you offend God every day? You do not cease to provoke him early and late, and yet, if someone just touches the tip of your finger, you are violent in temper right away. The remedy then, says Calvin, which is set down for us is to keep from being so quickly and easily offended at other men's faults by examining ourselves and being vexed with ourselves and afflicting ourselves. Be angry and sin not. That is to say, anger rightly directed keeps us from sin. Ponder your own hearts, the psalmist says, and let that vision keep you silent when you might otherwise be tempted to lash out with your own tongue and seek your own honor. Because the right kind of anger is all about God's honor. And when in response to legitimate abuse from others, when we turn and when we look at the beam in our own eyes and we consider how woefully we ourselves fail God and offend God and grieve God, and when we become angry with ourselves, it tunes us in to the honor of God and it allows us, it allows us to perceive our neighbor's sin now as a matter of God's honor and not our own. And it moves us 
as we ought to be moved, and it frees us finally to look at our neighbor with mercy and with pity. God is already angry at my neighbor, writes Calvin. He's already angry at him for doing me wrong. He takes up my cause into the matter of his honor. My place then is to pity the soul which has gone astray and is going down the path to perdition. Give yourself to the right kind of anger, writes Paul, and then let all wrong anger cease from you. Don't let it come near you. Don't let ungodly anger continue past the setting of the sun. That will only open up your life to the devil. And once the devil comes in, he is loath to go out. And so today, with these matters in mind, very important and very needful for us, would you please bow with me and would you agree with me today in the words of an old reformer's prayer? Now let us fall down before the majesty of our good God with acknowledgement of our sins, praying to God to make us perceive them more and more. And may he enlighten us with the doctrine of the gospel and that we may see our own sins and be ashamed of ourselves. And from the place of beholding our poverty, may we behold the righteousness of Jesus, which he gives to us freely so that we may be made into his glorious image for the sake of his high honor. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.